If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn in them with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. Uh, the bu- the uh, bulletin insert has the passage for this morning printed in it, and I invite you to turn there and follow along with me uh, as I read. We've been talking about a journey, a journey that we are all on. It's a journey through a broken world. It's a journey with a broken nature that naturally does its own thing. For followers of Christ here this morning, it's a journey in which we are to be changed more and more into the likeness of our Savior, the one who has called us, the one who has made us his own. It's the life of a pilgrim, the life of a pilgrim heading for a promised land as we so often sing. And so we've been talking about for the past several weeks what that change looks like. Particularly, what are those hard-to-reach areas in our lives? Areas that we too easily accept as acceptable? Or maybe those areas that we feel like are beyond change. Beyond real change. We can't do anything. We might throw our hands up and say, So we've looked at anxiety, discontentment, and then last week, not being careful with our words, the power of our speech and the things that we say. Well, like last week, we continue on in this journey. Last week, we turn to look not merely inwardly, how we handle the circumstances that come come at us inwardly, but how those circumstances affect our relationships. And today we, we stay there with how the gospel, how the good news of what Jesus has done for you ought to transform your relationships. And so we turn to Jesus' words, a familiar passage to many of you who know and love the Scriptures. Matthew chapter 5, the middle of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, lots of richness here. We looked at the Lord's Prayer for several weeks, which is found in this same sermon one chapter later. But today we turn to Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 21. Listen as I read. Jesus says to the crowds assembled, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. We live 
in an angry world, don't we? Probably don't have to make this case to you, but we live in an angry world. There's anger all over the news. Just this week, 63 people were killed in a marketplace in Pakistan by an extreme Sunni Muslim who went there because he was angry. He wanted to kill himself that he might kill some Shia Muslims. And he did. The news was full of the story of Christopher Dorner this week. The angry ex-LA policeman who was on a rampage at injustice that he felt he had experienced. There's anger, anger in our communities. How many stories are there in the news? Come spring, and here it comes, baseball season, of these little league brawls of dads just going at it with other dads, angry because their son's not getting playing time or because he was intentionally hit by a pitch. There's anger in our communities. There's anger in our marriages. Maybe you think you're immune this morning. Well, there's anger in the mundane. Let me give you a scenario. A scenario that is all too true for me. The line at the supermarket. There is a place of anger. I'm late for, late for uh, coming home. I need to stop at the supermarket and pick up a few things. I pick up my seven items. I run to the express lane, which specifically says ten items or less. And lo and behold, the person in front of me, twelve items. Oh, I know there's twelve because I've counted them. There's twelve items. Ten items or less. I'm late. My wife needs me at home. I've got five children. She's been with them all day. But the cashier takes this person, this individual. And then suddenly one of the items needs, the seventh item needs a price check, of course. (laughs) Needs a price check. Okay, get that price check. And then the eleventh item, well that said it was different on the sign in the aisle. It said it was 25 cents less. Come on. 25 cents, I'll give you the quarter if you'll just let this transaction end. And the anger is boiling up in me. And then finally, to top it all off, the total, and then out comes the checkbook. Oh, the checkbook! Who pays for things with a checkbook? Who do I make this out to? You see, anger in the mundane. Frustration, it hits all of us. Maybe that's not the supermarket for you. Maybe it's the traffic coming home from work. I don't know what it is, but we all frustrate. We all are frustrated by our world. We all are tempted to be angry people. And so this passage that Jesus speaks to us in Matthew chapter 5, this passage is not for hotheads. It's for humans It's not for those who suffer from a temper. It's for those who have a pulse. 
And so if you're a human this morning and if you have a pulse, Jesus' words are for you. Anger is a part of your life. And Jesus' words here give us no escape. They go to a depth that leave us no wiggle room. I'd like to think of myself as not an angry person. Not someone who particularly struggles with anger, except in the supermarket line. And yet Jesus' words to me were an indictment against my sin this week. So as we're going to see, Jesus shows us that anger is rooted in our hearts. That anger is because of our lack of love. Here's the thing, though. It doesn't have to be this way. It shouldn't be this way. That's the point of this whole series. And the reason we talk about anger today is because I think anger is one of those things that sometimes we refine, sometimes we accept. It's a respectable thing for us to occasionally be angry. It's maybe one of those neglected and overlooked areas in our life. People of God, there will be no, this is just the way I am this morning. There will be no, this isn't a struggle of mine this morning. Now I know that anger is a huge, complex issue. We can't possibly cover every angle. We can't possibly talk about everything that could be helpful for us to talk about. But we can talk about Jesus' words, which are piercing, which are good. There are a number of passages that I could have gone to this morning as we've been walking through this topical series. The Scriptures team with teaching about anger. Let me give you just a few references. Proverbs 29.22, a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. Ecclesiastes 7.9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Paul told the church of Galatia that fits of anger is a work of the flesh, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He told the Colossian church to straight up just put away your anger. And James teaches that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. All this to say that the chorus of Scripture resounds with an overwhelming, you need to deal with this. You need to look at your life in regard to this sin. You need to examine the anger in all of us. But it's Jesus' words specifically that we meditate on this morning. And there are two truths for us to think about, to walk through this morning. Two truths, and the first one is this. Our lack of love for others is murder of the heart. Let me repeat that. Our lack of love for others is murder of the heart. Let me begin to explain what I mean by first explaining what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 5. What he is saying here in this passage in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is correcting a misunderstanding 
of God's law, the law given to his people in the Old Testament, specifically the sixth commandment, a commandment that we're familiar with. And it seems almost as if Jesus is contradicting it. He says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, We know that's not the case. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. So how is Jesus not contradicting it when he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you? Well, there's one phrase that we need to notice here in Matthew 5. It's the phrase, you have heard it said. Why is that significant? It's significant because of what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, it is written. He didn't say, it is written. And so what Jesus is correcting is not the law of God as it is written, but the law of God as it is interpreted, as it is taught to God's people. In other words, Jesus is saying, you have heard it taught to you by your religious leaders and teachers of your day that the physical act of murder alone puts you in peril of judgment. But I tell you, it doesn't take murder to fall short of God's standard. Your teachers may have captured the letter of the law, but they have totally missed the spirit of the law. He says this is a love issue. This is a heart issue. And therefore, following me is so much deeper, so much more of a commitment than you think it is. I don't know how many of you remember the movie came out about 10 years called Minority Report. Tom Cruise starred in this movie. It took place in a futuristic America where there were pre-crime units who, using this sophisticated technology as as well as some weird fortune tellers that laid in milk or something, they would see a crime before it's committed and therefore make an arrest before someone died. A pre-crime unit. And so the opening scene of Minority Report is very gripping. It's the scene where a man catches his wife with another man and he's getting ready out of anger to kill her, to kill him, to take his revenge. And Tom Cruise comes busting through the window just before he's about to commit this act and tackles him and says, you're under the arrest for the future murder of your wife. And he says, I haven't done anything. I haven't committed any act. It's a fascinating thing to think about it. I thought about it when I thought about Jesus' words here because it's a movie that gets us asking the question, at what point? At what point is someone guilty? If a murder occurs, someone is dead, we all would say, yes, That person needs to pay. They've committed a crime. There is guilt. But what about if a murderer is firing a gun to commit a crime and his gun jams? Is he still guilty? 
How about if he gets in a car accident on his way to commit a crime and therefore he can't follow through on his act of murder? How about if he simply purchases the gun to do the job, but then chickens out and goes no further than that? Is he guilty then? How about if he just devises a plan in his head, but he doesn't act on it at all? What if he just wants someone to die? He just hates them. Would he be guilty of anything? Would that be a sin? Jesus here in Matthew 5 says, all of the above deserve judgment. All of the above deserve judgment. 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you, that, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Jesus takes our anger even a step further and says essentially that our lack of love for others is murder of the heart. Whoa. <laughs> Just let that sink in for a moment. Your lack of love is murder of the heart. We are guilty because we don't love God and we don't love others as we should. You know, in this discussion on anger, it should be pointed out that anger in and of itself isn't a sin. How do we know it's not a sin? Because the prophets and the psalmists, they speak of God's anger again and again. Moses cried out in Psalm 90, We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. We have this story in the Gospels of Jesus coming into the temple, angry, overturning the tables of the money changers and those who sought to profit in God's house. But here's the thing about Jesus' actions. It was an absolutely righteous, angry display. It was a pure display of zeal for God's glory and God's honor. The honor of His name. In Psalm 90, when Moses says in the very next verse that it's because of our iniquities that He has set before Him, that's why God is angry. So yes, God displays anger, but He does so out of pure love. Love for righteousness. Love for His glory. But that is not us. We may think it's us. We tend to think it's us in those moments of anger that I am justified in my anger. I am justified in my frustration. But think about it. Our anger is never out of pure love. Our anger is because of misguided love or absent love. Our anger is because we love ourselves. That's why we're angry. We love ourselves and we don't love our neighbors and we don't love God's glory. Getting back to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, he shows us this. He uses this word angry. And it's not the hot head, boiling point kind of anger. 
It's the low swell, the resentment, the bitterness that results so often in a lack of love. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What is Jesus saying here? Well, he first says insults. He uses the word insults. Whoever insults his brother. Your footnote in your Bible says the word raka. It's a term that might mean nobody. You're calling somebody a nobody. We don't often do that. You nobody. Maybe we do. But we don't need to actually say the name nobody because we do insult people by treating them as nobodies. We do dismiss people. We are indifferent to people's needs. We don't love. Well, but what about the word fool? He says, whoever says you fool will be liable. The word used here is from where we get our term moron. Or, to use modern vernacular, idiot. Now, we do say that word sometimes. Maybe we don't let it roll off our lips. Maybe we just say it in our hearts. But we do say that sometimes. And even when we don't, we scorn people, don't we? We make them feel less important than we. Talking about this term, I heard it said this week, that we murder people's self-confidence. We don't love. We don't love. We love ourselves. We don't love others. I want you to think about your lives this morning. I want you to think about your interactions. And perhaps you are one that can easily dismiss those fits of anger. Praise God for that. that That's not a struggle for you, getting to the boiling point. But Jesus says something so much more deeper, so much more penetrating than just blowing up and losing your temper. He makes us ask the question, have we dismissed people? Are we indifferent to their needs? Have we made others feel like they were beneath us? You see, love doesn't treat people like this. At least real love. The kind of love that we're called to. Love that puts others first. No, Jesus reminds us this morning that we aren't different than the murderer. We aren't much different than the murderer. And this is crucial for us to understand and to believe. A few years back, we decided... In California, as we are eating a peach, that we would plant the pit to see if we could get anything to grow. That always doesn't happen. I don't think you can just plant any pit and it'll grow. But sometimes it does. Sometimes a pit will grow. And sure enough, this 
little tiny peach sprig grew, at least began to grow until I promptly ran over it with the lawnmower, and that was the end of that. But the point is that in this peach pit was everything needed for a peach tree. Everything was in that pit. The trunk, the branches, the leaves, the eventual fruit, everything was there. All it needed were the right conditions. A little bit of water, a little bit of sun, a little bit of rich soil. God's Word reminds us this morning that so it is with us. In all of us is that seed, everything we need. We all have the capacity to be murderers. We are murderers given the right conditions. We murder by our lack of love. You see, Paul understood this. The Apostle Paul understood this, which is why he said, I am the chief of sinners, because he understood the gravity and the inwardness and the depth of his sin. A man so devoted to God's service could say something like that because he truly understood and was humbled before his broken heart. People of God, we need to see that. We need to come to the end of ourselves. Because you are called not just, you are, you are not just called to not murder. You might feel good that you haven't done that. You aren't just called to not be angry, and maybe you think that you've figured out a way to not do that. But you are called to love. And frankly, you are called to love in a way that you can't love. Jesus' demands here in Matthew chapter 5 exceed our ability to obey. They do. They bring us to the end of ourselves. They bring us to all humility, and that's what the law of God does. It drives us to Christ. And it's exactly why Jesus came. Jesus came because He can love like this. He did love like this. Luke 23:34 Jesus said as he hung unjustly on a cross for crimes he didn't commit after they had beat him up and spit on him and ridiculed him he says father forgive them that's love if anyone had a right to be angry it was Jesus and yet he loved He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus came to bear your sin. That you, murderers of the heart, might not be given the judgment that you deserve. And that's where we begin. And if you're here this morning and you don't know this Lord Jesus then you don't have the only remedy, the only antidote for anger in your heart. The only remedy, the only antidote for God's anger towards you and your sin is Jesus, the one who came and loved to the point of death.
For those of you who know and love the Lord Jesus, He bore your sin that you might now be free to live as He calls you. To live in love. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that He laid His life down for us, that we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers. And so the second truth that I want to close with today is this. The Gospel turns murderers into lovers. The Gospel turns murderers into lovers. Oh, we end on a high note. We end on the note of grace. Because the good news of Jesus bearing your sin and bearing your penalty and giving you His Spirit is that you can love. You can love first God. Let me spin this anger thing on its head for a moment and say that true love for God should produce in us or move us towards that place of righteous anger. Wait wait a second. You're telling me, you just told me not to be angry. Now you're telling me I need to be angry. No, I'm telling you that love for God ought to produce in us some anger. If we were to take our cue from the psalmist David in Psalm 26, I hate the assembly of evildoers. Again in Psalm 31, I hate those who pay regard to earthly, to, excuse me, to worthless idols. You see, as we love and as we treasure the God who made us and the God who saves us, the object of our anger becomes all that would be opposed to that treasure. All that would oppose His glory and His righteousness. And so Psalm 97.10 says, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. The Gospel turns murderers into lovers who, yes, get angry at injustice. Yes, get angry at abortion. Yes, get angry at racism. We get angry at the brokenness of our world. We get angry that things aren't as they should be. We get angry so that we are moved to make things right. The Gospel makes us lovers of God. But it also makes us lovers of others. Now how does this happen? How do we put away anger? How do we put on love in our lives. Four practical things for you to think about, for us to meditate on. And the first thing is this acknowledge your need and the urgency. Acknowledge your need and the urgency of your sin. In other words, I am an angry, unloving person. I'm clearly in love with myself, with my kingdom, with my way. And this is made evident by the way that I treat others. I am in need of rescue. I am in need of change. I am in need of grace. And I have it. See, the gospel remedy through Jesus inevitably results in that deep humility. You see who you are. You're no different or more deserving than anyone else. You remember that. And you remember Jesus who, like a lamb being led to the slaughter, was silent. Like a sheep before his shears. 
So you first have to acknowledge your needs. And then number two, you've got to pray that your idols will be revealed. Ask yourself this question, what are the roots of my anger? What are the roots of my frustration with others? What are the roots of my treating others like I do and not loving them as I'm called to love them? Is it my desire to save face? My appearance? Is it my comfort? Is it just my desire to control those around me and my world? Is it desire, my desire for recognition, for respect, for my reputation? What are the idols that are controlling the way that you treat those around you? Identify them by God's grace. Ask Him to show and shine His light in those deep corners of your heart. Number three, trust in God's sovereignty. Well, we've heard this before. But how useful and how helpful a robust view of God's sovereignty in all things is. Joseph, when he experienced incredible injustice at the hands of his brothers, trusted God's sovereignty. What they intended for ill, God intended for good. God allows others to sin against us. He allows tragedy to happen in our lives that we might be refined, that we might grow. Trust Him. There's always more than you can see. And lastly, run to the Gospel promises. We could go through many Gospel promises. Ephesians 4.32 Show kindness as you have been shown kindness. Forgive as you have been forgiven. 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. Colossians 3, bear with one another in love. We could go on and on at the gospel promises that are yours as you interact with each other. Well, going back to that silly checkout line that we began our time with, what kind of internal conversation do we have? To guard against anger. I know that's the, it's the kind of the lowest point of anger, but it's a good entry point for us. What's the internal redemptive conversation that we ought to be having? Why do I need to get out of here so quickly? My agenda is not king. God is king. God has put this person in front of me. This person is made in His image. They may not have any hope. They may be discouraged. They may be searching. A kind word rather than an impatient sigh. A smile rather than a stink eye reflects the God that I serve. I am no better. God has dealt with infinitely worse from me than I am experiencing here. I will not murder in my heart. I will love. There's four steps. There's four steps. Acknowledging your need. Praying for your idols to be revealed. Trusting in God's sovereignty. Running to the gospel promises. Take those things to your families. 
Take those things to your workplace. Take those things to your cranky boss and your cranky neighbor. And love. Murderers at heart and yet lovers by way of the Gospel. That's the only antidote to our anger. Love for God. Love for neighbor. So simple and yet so difficult. May God give us the grace to love as He loves. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, I thank You for Your Word this morning. I thank You for the promises that are ours. I thank You that You have not treated us as our sins deserve. But You have loved us. You have laid down Your life for us. That we might be those who don't just stay away from murder, but who love radically in an otherworldly way. Father, give us grace, we pray, to live and love like that in Jesus' name. Amen.